that moment of clarity was so significant, finding out that I was pregnant. And there was a connection there. Being adopted was was really big within that process of knowing that I am about to have something that is of my own. And I full-heartedly made that commitment to do what I needed to do to remain clean and sober. And it's just been the most beautiful thing. My son has not had to be around a mom who has been under the influence of, of a drink or a drug. And I'm grateful for that. Welcome home, friend, to Sober Shares Podcast, Episode 47. This podcast will highlight alcohol recovery stories via the real-life experiences of our guests and provide you with a front-row seat to their recovery journey. These deep-dive talks are guaranteed to inspire and entertain you. My name is Michael, and I'm an alcoholic. I have been sober since October the 10th of the year 2000. I'm a member of the world's largest 12-step recovery program, Sober Shares is in no way affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous. We speak only for ourselves and have no interest in outside issues. This podcast is not affiliated with any politics, organization, or institution. We hope to be of great service to the world when it comes to documenting recovery stories from the disease of alcoholism. I'm glad you're here, and I hope you find what you're looking for. And now, it's time to meet our guest. I will turn it over to them so they can introduce themselves and give their sobriety date if they choose to. Hi, I'm Monica Deco, alcoholic. My sobriety date is January 19th, 2011. Fantastic. How long is that? It's going to be 12 years come oh, January. Okay. Creeping up on 12 years. That's fantastic. That's a fantastic amount of sobriety. I'm proud of you for that. Thank you. This is not an official Alcoholics Anonymous podcast, but I do like to expose uh, our listeners to certain things that you would hear possibly in some of these meetings if you ever did attend them. So I want to read something called the AA preamble just so you can hear it and familiarize yourself with what you might hear if you ever attend a meeting. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is the desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. Does not wish to engage in any controversy, either endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. Just wanted to read that to expose some of the people out there that have maybe never heard that read, what it sounds like and what they might expect if they ever make it to a 12-step meeting. Can you tell us a little bit about the early years of your life and what did your family look like and where were you born? Sure. I was actually adopted from Bucharest, Romania. What? Yeah, yeah, full-blown Romanian right here. Okay. What are they good at in sports? What are Romanians good at at oh, sports? Oh, gymnastics. Oh, yeah. Wait, wait. Don't tell me Nadia. Is it Nadia Comaneci? Nadia Comaneci. Yes, Nadia Comaneci. I yeah. actually followed in her footsteps. and Did you? Did the competitive gymnastics. Did you? What's the coolest move? What's the name of the coolest move that you ever put together or learned? What I would be most proud of was being able to do a standing back tuck on the balance beam. Oh. The balance beam is that. How many inches wide is it? Four? Just about, yeah. About four. You're you up could pretty do a, high. You could do a backflip on that? Standing backflip. Feet to feet, no hands involved? Feet to feet, no hands. Just okay. full trust and... <laughs> full athleticism and trust. Okay, got a couple of questions about that. When you first started learning that, like when, okay, how old were you when you first completed your first successful one? 
Uh, I was probably about nine or 10. Um, I mean, I started gymnastics when I was four. I was always that rambunctious, hyper ADHD child. And my parents put me in competitive gymnastics to exert that energy. What about like some kind of harness? What kind of safety precautions were taken at the beginning to make sure you didn't break? I know you probably had a spotter, but did you ever have any harnesses that hung from the ceiling and belts? No. I mean, you're working on the floor and then you're moving up and then it's all about just trusting in the process. Okay. You can still do that, right? I can do a standing backflip. I'll I'll show off the occasional, you know, tumble (laughs) occasionally. (laughs) Embarrass the kiddos. I wish that we were in video format right now. Like, so you bust a backflip off that couch over there. That's amazing. So so tell me more about the adoption. Tell me about all. I didn't know that. Tell me about that. I was little. I was, I mean, an infant and, um, (laughs) you know, don't really remember anything. I mean, there's pictures of me being carried off the plane by this put together Romanian pilot. But I I do feel like it really shaped some of my life. You know, growing up, I, I went to private school here in Dallas and parents both worked And we were always kind of those rambunctious children that, um, you know, we'd go to school and then afterwards it was being carted off to after school activities. I would say probably when I was around maybe six or seven, there was a difference in me feeling different, but I felt like something was missing and gymnastics became that community going to the gym and training from 4 p.m. in the evening to 9 p.m. at night. I mean, it, it was truly my life. And ultimately, ended up doing gymnastics from age four till probably about 12 or 13. And I ended up breaking my ankle. And for me, that was the first discovery that most young kids aren't hitting the gym 30 to 40 hours a week. How old were you when you broke your ankle? So about... 12 or 13. You knew you broke it right away? Not immediately. Yeah. Not immediately. Did you have to have surgery? I did not. It healed on its own. Yeah, healed on its own. I love gymnastics and I love it when the Olympics come on and I always root for them. And it's just really, really cool. So was your, did you, your parents find you through an adoption agency? Yeah, found me through an adoption agency. Um, my mom shares that there was a New York Times article on Romanian adoptions and they just went that direction, and here I am. Who else was in your house? Your mom and your dad, and then you, and then any... Younger brother. Younger adopted brother. So as he well? he was not adopted. It was okay. kind of one of those stories where... That's exciting. They were able to have a kid. They were able to have a kid. And so it's you two together? Yes. How old is he? Or how much younger is he than you? Two years younger. Are you guys, Is he still around? You guys still close? Yeah, he's actually getting married uh, this summer, and... I'm quote unquote, his best man, woman. (laughs) (laughs) Let's move forward to your family now. What does it look like now? You're, you have kids and married and all that. Tell me about that. So yeah, just got engaged this past summer Congratulations. we've got three boys. So I'm a full thrown boy mom. Okay. Um, It's never a dull moment rather, you know, whether it's a, a football flying across the room, nerf darts, it's just constant pure chaos but the most beautiful chaos my wife's a boy mom too she likes it and i think it's very different than being a girl mom like i see how it goes down differently with those ones and then these ones i'm like that's very different it <laughs> it's is very very different did any of your boys want to do gymnastics or anything like that or are they no no interest it's all about football basketball 
uh, soccer. I actually coach our oldest soccer team. Never played soccer. Mm-hmm. I ended up watching YouTube videos on how to <laughs> put players in certain positions, and we've done fairly well. It's 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 a lot of fun. You know, these are the things that, as a mom in recovery, I get to do, and I'm grateful to be able to you know show up and be present. What were your thoughts on spirituality as a young person? We grew up in a, a, a Jewish home. It was definitely imprinted upon us that we would practice those traditions. I don't feel as if I really grasped what God or even spirituality meant to me. So as I grew older, it was actually a tad bit confusing. But, you know, we grew up going to Sunday school, um, ended up having a bat mitzvah, but it was really not understood by you at that time. Okay. That makes sense. And how did you make sense of that through your teenage years and into your early twenties? Like how did that flower and change or grow or die? (laughs) Well, I mean, it was really after age 13, having a bat mitzvah that it it just dwindled and it wasn't until I stepped into the rooms of AA that it started to spark again. All right, well, let's follow that through a little bit more. So where are you at now with God? Are you following the Jewish tradition? Are you doing a little bit something that's more spirituality-based? Or where, do you, where are you at now? I'm, I'm all about spirituality. Um, I, I don't put any religious ties to who my higher power is. Do you go to church or to anything online? or No. no. What about your uh, younger brother and your parents? Are they still going to synagogue all the time and hanging out? My mom, she she follows the Jewish faith and, and my dad as well. Um, my brother and I have have shifted in, in different directions, but no ties to any sense of, of, of religion. It's been more so about just that connection with what God and who God means to us. Do you think your parents will listen to this podcast? They might. I think okay. my dad. Yeah. That's cool. This is your first one you said, right? Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, I've done 47. These are number 47. I've never been on a podcast before, so I'm just not sure how it would feel to sit down there at that end. But I've been asked to be on a bunch, and I just have said no repeatedly because I just want to save all my ammunition for this podcast. You know my stories. I don't want to just blow it all out in one hour somewhere else. So let's talk a little bit more about your childhood. Was it a struggle or did you enjoy it? Were you a happy little kid? I know you were at the gym a lot, but... Yeah, I mean, I was happy. It it was very active. We were always doing something, whether it was, you know, sports, after-school activities. We traveled a lot growing up, had amazing opportunity through my mom's work. She she was an oncologist here in the Dallas area, and she would give talks, and, you know, one minute we'd be going to China, the next we'd be going to Costa Rica, uh, Bermuda. So it was a, it was a very cultural experience growing up in regards to some of the opportunities that we got to have. I I would say that I was happy, um, you know, being involved with, with friends and family. And, you know, we would always travel up to Northern Michigan in the summertime. So the experiences were there. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts on adoption now? Since you were on, you know, there's different sides of it. There's the parent side of adoption and you're on the other side, the child side. What are your thoughts on adoption now? I mean, I'm grateful for it. You know, I I had the opportunity to travel back to to Romania and 
there's, you know, a great deal of poverty that's there. And, you know, I would absolutely say that, you know, if it was an opportunity for me in the future, I'd do it in a heartbeat. Did you ever try to search your birth parents out and find out anything about them or what happened? I did. I was, I went to the last known apartment complex when I went back there. Um, I have, you know, documents that are all in Romanian Mm -hmm. and I, I, I find that at some point I'll, I'll dive into that. But for me, it, it was the curiosity wasn't exactly there because home is here. Yeah. Did you have any photographs of none? And somebody took a picture of you uh, being carried off the plane by a Romanian pilot. I was that was your mom and dad. Yes. Oh, they had <laughs> signs waiting at DFW. Welcome home, Monica. Uh, and it's, it's exciting to look back. So you were already named before you got here. Yes. They didn't have to pick your name out. And the, and your current last name is the name of your, of your parents that you're living with yes. or not living with currently, but that raised you. Um, what were your, when did you first become aware of alcohol and what were your thoughts about it initially? Yeah. So I, I shared upon, you know, breaking my ankle and having trained, you know, 30 to 40 hours a week in the gym. And upon that injury, that was the game changer. I noticed that friends have sleepovers. I noticed that people were having, you know, play dates and it wasn't about, this commitment in life endeavor of, you know, a sport. And so my first drink was when I was 13. Yeah, me too. Um, got into the parents' bar area and snuck some vodka. And at first there wasn't that, oh, this is this is it. It, it was, okay, that's kind of nasty. That's kind of gross. I'm not really quite sure. Um, But then it quickly transitioned into sneaking more, trying more, and ultimately, you know, I was in a school where a lot of the friends had older siblings, and so the party scene started up pretty quickly. I have been sober for a while and I've talked to a lot of people and it seems like that number, that age demographic of 13 years old is the most common number that I hear uh, of people of recovery. I don't know why. I'm just telling you that that's what my ears have picked up over the last couple of decades. I started drinking at 13. I have a 12 year old son now and I think he's going to be 13 next year. And I think that's entirely too young to start drinking. He's still a baby. Absolutely. So I was drinking as a freaking baby when I was 13 years old. Maybe that's why I had to end up in Alcoholics Anonymous. But um, I had like, I mean, I don't even know how to explain it. The kind of experience that I had with my first drink was uh, total relief, total freedom. You know, you were talking about uh, you had a little bit of stress, a little bit of doubts about some things in your life at a younger age. I did too. I think a lot of mine started around the time I started school and realized that a lot of the other kids were smarter than I was and advancing faster than I was. And way better at reading than I was. And I started to feel different. And then on top of that, kids can be mean. And then I started to fall behind. So I started to have all these whacked out feelings. And by the time I got to be 13 years old, I had a lot of inner turmoil inside my heart and that alcohol just numbed it right out and put all my fears to sleep. And I used it, uh, as a medicine for a very long time. I would self-medicate with alcohol and later marijuana and different types of drugs just to anesthetize myself to get through a day. And uh, I had a lot of fun for a while. <laughs> sure, I did too. 
I did. I'll never come on this podcast and be like, oh, it was terrible. You know, I mean, I had some rock and roll good times for many years. And then it turned on me. As I began to experiment, there was that numbness and relief that started to take place. I did feel different growing up. I struggled with a learning difference. I went to a school specifically for kiddos who had learning differences. Yeah, me too. I went to Winston. Where'd you go? Shelton? Shelton. Yeah, I went yeah, to Winston. Yeah. Shelton. My son goes to Winston now. My son goes to Shelton now. Okay, let's go. We'll be playing you in basketball, maybe. Possibly. Okay, so when did you start drinking on a regular basis? When did you start getting cranked up? Around 15? Yeah, it was around 15. It became a daily task. And by task, it was already very quickly a painful process. You said daily at 15? What do you mean a painful process? Like painful to get it or what? Painful as far as that recognition that I needed to numb out to feel okay. What were you drinking? Coors Light or what? Beer from the back fridge. Uh, At your house? Yeah. Did you ever try that? I used to like that stuff. What was it called? Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. You're younger than I am. What did you drink? What did you drink? I'd Zima? go for a good Shiner. Shiner bottle. Oh, yeah. yeah. Damn it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't have that good stuff. They didn't have designer beers when I was younger. I'm 52. I'm older than you. I just had a few choices. Um, so how did you, well, I guess you were stealing it from the refrigerator in the garage. Oh, yeah. No, I would absolutely steal. I mean, like I said, my parents traveled a lot, and so the accessibility was was there, and I learned to be manipulative Mm -hmm. and that dishonesty kicked in Mm -hmm. and I was just able to hide it. When did you start getting boyfriends? I'm sure they helped you get alcohol, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They're like, don't worry. I got it. Yeah. I mean, around 14, 15. Mm -hmm. And as I said, like had friends that were in older grades. So it it was not difficult. Did you ever have blackouts? Sure. Um, How did it hurt you in the beginning of your drinking career? You told me a little bit about how it's helped you. How did it hurt you? Well, I stopped participating within sports. I mean, I continued, I guess you could say, my career. You know, I ran cross country, I ran track, I did cheerleading, softball, basketball, but that motivation wasn't there. There was a sense of arrogance that suddenly started to seep through that mentality of, I don't have to show up to practice, but I can still run in these meets. I can still play in these games. Yeah. And I just rolled with it. You look like an athlete. You look like a natural athlete to me. So I see where you could probably get that in your mind. The coaches are like, you didn't come to practice all week. Yeah, I'm still the best one on the team, dog. You got to play me, dog. <laughs> there was that, that, that arrogance about me. And, and y'all need me. <laughs> That's true. So did your, parent, did your parents ever mention anything to you about your, your, your drinking? And did you ever do drugs? Did you? I did. Yeah. I did. It's a big part of my story. You want to talk about that a little bit? Was it mostly weed? Or did, let's get into the drugs a little bit. Yeah. So it really transitioned from drinking alcohol to smoking weed. Um, that as well became a daily thing. Mm-hmm. And very quickly um, got into Xanax and... My drug of choice um, ended up primarily with cocaine and alcohol. Wow. So did your, when and if did your parents ever call you out? Did they ever say, hey, what's going on with you? We noticing some things or did they ever get involved? Um, I remember pretty vividly on a homecoming 
pep rally night coming home stoned. I had actually ridden with a friend and I had asked her to watch me drive home. Now, my car was parked on the driveway and all I did was get in the car and drive it like two feet to park it. (laughs) And I had walked inside and my mom had questioned me on that I smelled like smoke. And I was like, no, 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 no. Someone else was mom. Like I'm, I'm fine. And there was this just stare and saying, Hey, like, I hope you're making smart choices. And I immediately went to bed. Yeah. Um, it became apparent to my mom and dad when I left for university of Arizona And I had strictly chosen that school because it fell within the top 10 party schools and joined a sorority out there and ended up very quickly getting into the party scene there, wasn't making my classes, you know, signed up for an 8.30 a.m. weather and climate class, (laughs) never made it. I think only the first day I I had appeared and then from there it just plummeted. Um, so I, my roommate actually reached out to my parents and then said, Hey, I think there's something going on. They ratted you out. Your roommate ratted you out. I adore her and I love her. <laughs> and I look back and there actually is a, a great deal of gratitude for that because from there it, it transitioned into, I came home for Thanksgiving break and that was a very difficult time. Um, there was a, multitude of blackouts i remember i had driven my dad's truck and the next morning he got into it for work and it reeked of weed and had to take it to go get it washed and cleaned up and they were starting to notice and i was gonna board the plane to head back to university and i made the call and told my parents i I can't board this plane if I board this plane, I don't believe that I'll come back. This was going back for second semester of freshman year? Yes. Wow, you were crashing hard your freshman year. Yeah, I got sober at 19. Oh, did you really? Yeah. I didn't realize that. Wow, 12 years, wow. Um, Do you still talk to your college roommate? We're friends on Instagram, and we'll occasionally chat and keep up with one another. Wow. That's amazing that she called. So she called your parents, ratted you out, and then what? They called you, or they came out there to get you, or what? They, they do? came out there. Oh, tell me about that. They came out there, and Please I remember going out. out to dinner, and them asking what's been going on. I I played it off, um, and and just said, hey, you know, it's the typical, just kind of partying. Like there's nothing to be concerned about. Um, you know, I'm making good grades. I'm making my classes, and they trusted in that and nobody wants to believe that their kids are failure oh exactly that's no. why i think my mom that's why i think my mom was so blind to what was going on she just i don't know i, I don't know i think that she just didn't want to see that or be be that guy's mom so she just kind of was like oh and so you should know jobbed them you told them yeah i told them everything was okay but mm. then within three months you know was home and did you get back on that plane to go back for the second semester of freshman year no my bag did but i didn't really you were at dfw airport i was at dfw airport and 
there was just this feeling that Mm. if I get on this plane, I'm going to spiral. Oh my God. How scary. And, And so I ended up staying and at that time, you know, my parents were not happy with my decision. Um, education has always been, you know, very important within our household. And they had asked that, you know, I return and finish out the semester and, you know, seek out some counseling. Um, but I just knew. And, and so I ended up staying here in Dallas, living with a friend locally and, immediately just continued to use and drink. What was the cocaine like? What was that doing to you? How'd that help you crash? Um, I wouldn't say that. I mean, it wasn't good. I mean, I, I, I crashed fairly quickly. Um, for me, it was more of a confidence booster. I always struggled with self-esteem, struggled with confidence. Um, I wasn't, that social butterfly within the rooms always was kind of, as they say, that wallflower, kind of checking out the room, figuring out who I can trust. And the second that I did coke, there was that immediate blast of, I can conquer the world. Mm. Um, but it was short-lived. How long does it last? Like 15, 20 minutes? Just about, yeah. Really? And it just goes away. I think I did. I don't think. I know I did a couple times. And I was scared of it. I was real scared of it because I had heard of these stories. I was like, you'll end up selling your car. You'll end up prostituting yourself. <laughs> I'm like, what? I was like, Can it, is it that good? And I tried it a couple times. I was like, that? Was, I mean, I felt it, but I just was, I was scared of it. I was like, Mm-mm, I don't think I should be doing that because I think that will really hurt me. So I just kept drinking and smoking. And that hurt me just as much. Did you ever use any special techniques to try to control and enjoy your drinking at any point? Yeah, I mean, I would try not to use during the weekdays, but I mean, I was young, I was a teenager. Like there was that feeling of I'm invincible. And I think that's what played a big part of me crashing and burning really quickly. When when did it occur to you or did it ever occur to you that you had an alcohol and drug problem? Because a lot of people I talk to, they'll tell me the exact story you're telling me up to this point, And they'll be like, I had all these red flags and all these things were happening. But I didn't think it was the alcohol and I didn't think it was drugs. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't think it was that I was an alcoholic or a drug addict. What, what was your thoughts on, on that when you were crashing? Well, when I had returned back home and stayed with not boarding that plane for University of Arizona... Um, I ended up going to seven treatment centers. Wow. So within the time frame of less than a year. And the first one I was willing and ready to go. Like I recognized that I had an issue with alcohol and drugs. Um, But upon being confronted about it within the treatment center, I denied it. Went through terrible withdrawals. Um, I remember at one point going through withdrawal and I remember seeing the red firelight and thinking it was a Boston Red Sox hat. I'll never forget that. And my body was shutting down. I was pale. I was skinny. I was just a complete shell. And that still for me was not enough. It wasn't enough that 
I had lost the trust of my family and friends. I had ended up, you know, not being able to live in my parents' house. Uh, I was really living out of my car, going from friend's house to friend's house to asking whoever would take me in if I could stay. And going through all of those treatment centers, it wasn't until I found out that I was pregnant with my son that I had to stop. Wow. What about hospitalizations? Did you ever have any DW? I mean, do you ever have any car wrecks or have to go to any hospitals or anything related to your drinking? Um, I, I visited the occasional psych hospital. Um, <laughs> been in the back of a squad car getting APOWed. What's that? It's being placed for psych. APOWed? Yes, <laughs> yes. No. I spent the whole time asking the officer if they really have to get a certain quota for tickets, and he denied it. He's like, that's not true. Yeah. Uh, the last episode I recorded, uh, episode 46 with Kathleen, she told me some funny stuff and she was talking about that she, she like during her time that she was explaining where you are in your story that she hated it, the word crazy. People would call her crazy. And she's like, that's my trigger word. <laughs> Don't call me crazy. Oh, I was definitely crazy. That's I what was she erratic. said. That's what she told me. She's like, I was crazy. But when people would say that, I'd be like, <laughs> she would get so mad. I was absolutely erratic. Um, ended up in, in different psych hospitals. I remember at one point my sponsor coming to visit me and I had gotten so distraught that I had grabbed the bowl of apples huh. in front of me and started chunking them at the walls. Really? Just filled with anger and filled with resentment. And it was mostly at myself, at where I was at 19, you yeah. know, being in treatment centers after treatment centers. And, and I thought at the time, like, I can figure this out. Like, this is my task to figure out, to control. And I had to come to that acceptance piece that, like, I can't do this on my own. That's hard and to I, do. Yeah, and I fought that for a long time. Yeah, like, it's I, hard to do at 18 or 19 because you still got so much firepower, you feel like. You got so much estrogen and testosterone at that point. You're like, I can do whatever I want to do. I just need to set my mind to it. Right. Did you ever have thoughts of hurting yourself or other people? Um, not hurting others. Um, I did have, you know, suicidal ideation, um, struggled with, you know, that confidence and you know, going to seven treatment centers and being in that mindset that I can do this on my own and I just have to check these boxes and I just have to stop drinking and I just have to stop using and not being able to do so impacted my desire to to want to live. Wasn't it shocking when you found out that you couldn't stop? It was, it, was. For, it was for me, it was shocking because once I attained the knowledge, okay, from all the information I'm receiving, I'm a smart guy. I feel like, yeah, okay, I'm probably alcoholic and drug. Okay. I am alcoholic and drug. But what I'm going to do now is I'm just going to stop. Right. Because I have that information now. Now that I have the information that I can no longer successfully drink and drug, that that's a lie in the sand. Thank God we're going to make it a lie in the sand. And I just won't use any anymore. And I was horrified and shocked that I could not, I got sober at 19 as well. Um, I got sober. My original sobriety date was five seven eighty nine. I got sober at nineteen, and I lasted for um, two years, two and a half years, and then I relapsed. I got sober through a treatment center called Timberlawn. Yeah. It was a psychiatric hospital in Dallas named Timberlawn, 
and I went there and I won't, my next question is going to lead into a, I'm going to tell a quick story and then I'm going to lead into my next question to you. And my next question to you is going to be, can you tell me if you have a memory of any one particular episode or counselor or employee of any of these treatment centers that you went to that finally got through to you and broke the ice and was able to like get inside of your brain, your heart and your soul and really reach you in, in a special way. And I had that happen for me at 19 years old in a treatment center, um, Timberlawn. And it happened uh, with a lady who was an employee there. I don't know what her certifications were. I don't know if she was a, how many letters she had after her name or what kind of counselor she was. I don't know any of that, but I know she was an employee there. She was there every night that we were there. And she took us on a guided meditation one night. And I was very obstinate and kind of against the whole thing until we took that guided meditation. And I won't talk about it too much on this podcast because I just don't feel like it right now. But I had a spiritual experience and a big breakthrough just by listening to her voice and um, the guided meditation. And then over, over the next subsequent five, six, seven, eight nights, I would see her every night and my ears started to open up to her voice and her message. Maybe not everybody else that worked there, you know, maybe not the Davids or the, or the Sanchez's or the Charlie's or the Heather's, but her, I could hear her voice. And she would start to like download information into me about the disease. And she would like, tell me what the odds were of me staying sober, which scared me, but it also gave me gasoline and power and motivation to want to stay sober. So do you have any memories of any kind of counselors that were able to get through to you in any of those seven treatment centers? Yeah. The last treatment center that I went to, um, was out in Van Alstine, Texas. And at that time, I mean, I was broken. I was completely... you got to be after seven treatment centers. Completely broken. And I remember walking in. It was the second or third day coming out of detox. And sunken eyes, dark circles, just completely just gone. Just existing, not living. And there was a therapist there that did acupuncture. And she had come up to me a few times and had jokingly kind of, you know, told me to, you know, lift myself up, you know, sit up straight, uh, lift that hat up over your eyes. And she asked me if I wanted to, you know, have an acupuncture session. And I thought, okay, this is kind of, you know, cheesy. I wasn't really into it, wasn't quite sure what it was. You know, I thought it was like yoga. Now I love yoga, but it just seemed out there. And I laid down on the table and she started, you know, placing these little pinpoint needles into, you know, different points. And all of the sudden, I just cried, just broke down with what was everything that I had been holding in. And she just held my hand. And for the first time, I shared my deepest, darkest secrets. I shared, you know, experiences with trauma. I experienced um, just a sense of love in that room and support in someone who said, I believe in you but you got to stop trying to control this. Like you have to find that place of acceptance 
and lean in. And walking out of that session, something switched, something changed. And for those six months in treatment, because I had gotten to that point where it wasn't the 30 days, it wasn't the 90 days, it was you need six months worth of treatment. And I was accepting of that. A, I had nowhere to go. Um, you know, B, I was, you know, dropped out of college. I was completely alone. And I thought, well, it's a place to live. But I, I wanted to stay. And I, I took that time and that opportunity to educate myself and really the education piece for me was just to listen for the first time I felt like if I just listen to what these professionals are saying what these people who are coming in and bringing these 12-step meetings are saying rather than the previous six treatment centers where I mean I'd sit there and just note take or I'd zone off or I'd say, okay, if I just do this, if I just do that, or even if I just make it through this week, then I can call my parents and they'll bail me out and I'll be able to return to, you know, all the other things that I was doing previously. And that experience walking out of that acupuncture session was a change. That's amazing. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. Do you know if the acupuncture lady was in recovery or she was an employee or you don't know? I don't know, but um, she has become a, a, a very intricate part of my life. We're still in contact oh, today. Oh, really? You want to give her a shout out by first name? I do. Dr. Susana Mendez. Okay. She's a fiery, spicy Argentinian okay. woman oh, who... hope she listens to this. ...is a beautiful person inside and out. That's fantastic. The lady that got through to me at Timberline, she was in um, 12-step Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, and she would tell me and all the other clients, which is what we were. We were $1,000 a day clients. I mean, it was, seriously, there was 12 of us in a room, and we were all paying $1,000 a day, which is $12,000 a day. We were there for 30 days. They were getting $30,000, and so she would talk to us like clients, and so, which we were. And so she would tell me and all the other clients, she'd be like, I don't remember her name, okay? This girl changed my life, but I don't remember her name, and I don't remember what group she went to, and I didn't know how long she had sober because I forgot, but I know that she was for sure sober and alcoholics and all and I remember she told me, she's like, I want y'all to know that I'm sober and I go to AA meetings, and that's why I always tell you guys to go to AA meetings because I'm sober and it's the best thing that ever happened to me, but I also want y'all to know that the reason I continue to go to AA meetings after I work here all day with you guys is because it's different. I can't get my recovery and my sobriety here by working with you guys all day, 12 step style kind of ish here, that is separate. She had a dividing line and a wall between her recovery life, AA life here, and then her work life in here, even though she was working in that industry. And she, and I remember, I remember hearing her say that. And I was like, this lady's smart. I was like, this lady is smart. And I know that she does what she says she's going to do. Cause she looks tired all the time. Like, I believe that she really did work with us for 12 hours a day and then actually leave and go to a meeting and then come home and go to bed and then come back and work with us 12 hours and then go to a meeting and go. 
I just believed her. And I thought it was really cool that she, um, she told us that. And it was really interesting being in that treatment center because there were celebrities in mind, you know, like I, I would be like, I know that dude, you don't got to tell me who that is. And I know who that chick is. You don't got to tell me who she is. And so it was just very interesting being in there with all these different types of people. I think that you're uniquely qualified to speak to young women um, who are 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, all the way up to 25, 24, somewhere in that demographic that are struggling with alcohol or drug addiction and are wondering um, what it's going to be like when they try to seek out help and maybe go into a, a 12-step program. So can you tell us how you ended up in your first 12-step recovery meeting? Was it actually an in-house deal? In the treatment centers, or did you go to one outside? No, my first 12-step meeting was with my sponsor, who I work with today, and it was prior to all of these seven treatment centers. Okay. Um, I showed up messed up, mm -hmm. and um, they had me read how it works. I don't remember a single word of what I had said. Okay. Um, took me 15 minutes to read, but it was, it was kind of like a God thing of me recognizing that again, I'm in this situation where I can't control it and I can't even for an hour show up sober. And, and so isn't that embarrassing? Oh, it's extremely embarrassing. It's embarrassing. That happened to me too. I was like, I can't believe it, dude. I can't even, I can't do nothing without getting drunk or high. This is ridiculous. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, being, being young and, you know, being a, a, a woman who's embarking on this journey of recovery, it, it was scary. I, I felt alone and I felt just different. You know, all of my friends are out there you know, in school, in sororities, you know, I, I felt like this failure who, who couldn't, you know, get my stuff together to be able to make classes at college or participate, you know, in the sorority life. Like everything was me just showing up just completely obliterated, whether it was noticed or not, like always numbed out. Yeah, me too. I noticed that to be honest with you, I noticed that in my, you know, eight, about 17th or 18th year of life. I noticed because I started drinking at 13. And so by the 17th or 18th year I was on this planet, I started to show up to a lot of stuff that was not appropriate for a young person to be drunk or high. But I was drunk and high all the time. And I was just starting to get embarrassed about it. You know, like I'd have to like represent in front of my friend's parents and stuff. And I'm faded. <laughs> I'm 17 and 18 and faded and I'm in front of my parents, friends. And I think they could probably tell because I smoked a lot of weed too. And I used to roll around with Visine. Remember Visine? Did you ever use the eye oh, drops? Yeah, yeah man. I, yeah, but the, my eyes would be so cashed out, but I have contact lenses. So I'd be wearing contact lenses. My eyes would be cashed out and I'd be trying to hit it with the Visine, but I'd just be hitting the plastic of the contact lenses and it'd get all sticky and goopy. And I was like, what's going on? It would just look worse. You know, I just show up, look all just whacked <laughs> reeking like Bob Marley. I was like, what's going on here? What's really going on? So I want to talk to you about your moment of clarity. I don't know if one of those moments you just talked to me about was your moment of clarity, you know, the acupuncture deal. I don't, can you speak to me a little bit about your moment of clarity and what that was like and where that was, or have you already mentioned it? 
No, so my moment of clarity was when I found out that I was pregnant with my son. So after that initial time in treatment for six months, you know, I spoke about how there was this sense of acceptance and this piece of just listening and soaking it all in. Well, I fell in love with the treatment boyfriend very quickly after those six months relapsed and within a very short period of time found out I was pregnant. And that for me was my aha moment that I am done. And I remember being on 635 and I pulled over and it was then and there that I had just said, I cannot do this. And I just vowed to commit. Just right there on the side of the road? Yeah. You just pull over? Pulled over. And you're crying? Yeah. Broke down? Broke down. How long did it last? The moment of clarity, where you could clearly see the old life and the new life. And I was there for about 10, 15 minutes. Okay, mine lasted about 45 seconds. Yeah. Just to let the listener know, when we're speaking about the moment of clarity, which is kind of, I'll just speak for myself, the pivoting point of my life. Another person might call it a fork in the road where I could go left or I could go right. There was only two choices, and left is alcohol, drug, addiction, death, prison, misery, and right is attempt to get sober, try to get sober, do get sober, go get sober. That lasted about 45 seconds for me, and it happened while I was driving. That's crazy. I was in a car, too, okay? I was in a Jeep Wrangler, and I was driving down the 76 Highway, and um, I believe I was in, in Oceanside, California, or Vista, California. I think I was rolling from the border from Oceanside, California, into Vista, California. And I'm driving, and I had gotten faded the night before, like super drunk, like super, super drunk the night before off St. Pauli Girls beers. And I was driving, and... I was coming up over this ridge, over this hill, and it was early in the morning, and there was nobody on the road but me. And this thought came to my mind, and it said, hey, Mike, you're dying. You're dying of alcoholism, and there's no hope for you. You're a full-blown drug addict. You're a full-blown alcoholic. You're a full-blown scumbag, and you're a full-blown criminal. And what's going to happen is you're going to die. Or you can go back to Alcoholics Anonymous again, Try again, get another sobriety date, another desire chip, another sponsor, another set of literature, and try again. And that's your two choices. And I grasped onto that thought like I was drowning, and I held onto that. And I haven't had any drugs or alcohol since that. But it only lasted 45 seconds. Because after that 45 seconds lasted and I could see everything clearly, moment of clarity, I immediately started to doubt myself. Like right after I had made the decision to, to go back to AA and get an sobriety date and do all that, immediately I started to, to, to doubt myself. And I would say things like this. Once I started to doubt myself, I would say, I'd be like, man, you're probably overreacting here. You're probably overreacting. Not everything has to be black and white. There are shades of gray in the world. Um, and I used to do this thing and this is embarrassing to talk about on a public level. I used to like, when I would make these decisions before, cause I had made this decision hundreds of times I used to, I remember I would go and get all my beer or alcohol or weed and I would pour it down the toilet or down the sink in the kitchen, or I'd flush the weed down the toilet or whatever. 
And I'd make a big production out of it in a show, and I'd be like, oh, I'm done. I'm swearing off. <laughs> 30, 45 minutes later, I'm at the beer store calling up the dope man or whatever and trying to get more. And a couple times, and this is a true story, a couple times I'd be driving down the road, and I'd get so sick of that life and so sick of that guy and who I was that I would roll the window down in my car, and I used to carry Ziploc bags, and inside that Ziploc bags, I'd have a lighter, a protopipe, and some weed. And I kept it all in the Ziploc bag, rolled up into a real tight little ball, and I would keep it up under the dashboard of my Jeep Wrangler, up under the emergency brake. If you reached your hand up under there and then curled your fingers back towards the steering wheel, there was a shelf. There was a little shelf there. <laughs> and that's where I keep my junk and stuff. And so I remember a couple of times, this is horrifying, this is totally true, I would throw it out the window. I would get so mad, I'd be like, F this, F that, I'll be scumbag no more. And I would just chunk it as far as I could into a field. But in my mind, I'd be like, yo, I'm at the corner of California Street and Seaward. I got to remember that just in case I change my mind. So I got four or five, six hours later, I'd be back there with a flashlight in that field, you know, with my hazard lights on and my little Jeep Wrangler. I'd be looking in the field with my flashlight. I'd be like, there it is right there. And I'd pick it back up and go smoke it. I mean, damn it. It got me every time. But that moment of clarity I told you about a minute ago. What happened later is 45 minutes later, after I had that moment of clarity, I picked up the phone. I picked up the phone, the landline, because this is before cell phones for me. I'm an older guy. So before cell phones, before the internet, I had to find the landline, found the landline, called information, got the number of Alcoholics Anonymous, San Diego County, called the central office in San Diego. Guy picked up the phone and I said, hey, he goes, Alcoholics Anonymous, San Diego, central office. I don't know who the guy was, David or something. I was like, hey, Dave, what's up? My name's Mike, and I'm an alcoholic. I used to be sober and Alcoholics Anonymous, but I relapsed. I've been drinking every day for eight years, and I'm dying, and I can't stop drinking, and I'm not going to make it. And there was a big, fat, long, pregnant, silent pause. He didn't say anything for about eight seconds, just nothing. And then he said, welcome home. And that's why at the beginning of this podcast and every single podcast, I say, welcome home to Sober Shares podcast because that guy said that to me. And when he said that to me on that phone, he said, welcome home. It just made me feel all the way back into the program immediately. And so that's why I say that at the beginning of every show. And he told me, I was like, what should I do? And he's like, where are you? I was like, I'm at a, I'm at a payphone, bro. <laughs> I was like, I'm at a payphone at Vigalucci's restaurant over here in uh, Ventura. No, not been sure. Carlsbad. I go, I'm at Vigalucci's Italian restaurant in Carlsbad, California on a payphone. He goes, where, where are you going to be? Like, you want to go to a meeting? You need to go to a meeting. I was like, okay. Yeah, right. Whatever. And he goes, he asked me a few questions. I was like, he goes, go to 1919 Apple Street tonight at eight o'clock. I was like, okay. He goes, that's a good meeting. Go to 1919 Apple Street tonight at eight o'clock. And I did. And I haven't had any drugs or alcohol since then. So. That's kind of my little story, story on my moment of clarity. And I liked yours too. It was beautiful. So what happened after you were on the side of the road and you were pregnant and you had that moment of clarity? What, what happened next? I mean, I ended up going to meetings and I returned to AA. And from there, it was a commitment of just showing up. And I thoroughly started working through the steps and you know, got back into therapy, which was also very beneficial for me and just started doing the work. Do you still go to therapy now? I do. I'm a big proponent of therapy and I had about five years sober and I was doing some wild shit. 
I mean, I was five years sober, but I was not maybe acting five years sober. I was still wilding out in the dating scene and uh, just kind of doing some crazy stuff at work. And I was still taking some chances and I was still going to meetings every day, not drinking and drugging, but I was having issues and stuff. And I was working the steps and I had a sponsor, but I was still kind of going wild. And a friend of mine called me out like to my face. He's like, he's like, bro, X, Y, Z, what's up? And I was horrified and embarrassed that he said that. And so, so I started thinking about what he said and I was horrified and embarrassed. And I said, uh, I talked to my sponsor about it, but my sponsor was just a regular dude. He didn't have a lot of letters after his name. He wasn't a psychologist. He wasn't a psychiatrist. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't, he was, he was a lot, but he wasn't what I needed. And so my thought in the first five years of my sobriety was that I was really hoping and I was kind of being told that all my problems could be solved with all the tools that are available in the first 164 pages of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I wanted that to be true and I believed in that and I held on to that. But I got to a point where I realized that I needed to talk to somebody outside of the rooms. And so I will always be a supporter of counseling and therapists and people that have a lot of letters after their names and people that are experienced with, um, that have gone to a lot of schooling and understand how to um, deal with childhood trauma and um, all kinds of things that uh, maybe people that Alcoholics Anonymous that have a profession of being like a plumber might not have that skill set or if you're... um, sponsors an electrician he might not understand all of the scientific nuances of counseling and, and the different modalities and stuff like that because he's an electrician so he doesn't maybe get all the modalities that are available so i'm a proponent of um, therapy if you need it go get you some i'm also a proponent of uh, medication if you if you need medication go get you some because um your sponsor who may be a plumber or electrician is not a medical doctor and they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to that. So um, I just had to get there, you know, I had to mentally get there, spiritually get there and physically went, get there. So I went and I started to pay somebody $125 an hour to talk to me, a counselor. And they helped me tremendously and it helped me untangle a couple of things, mostly around women, mostly around like chicks and females and dating and sex and sexuality that I was um, erroneous on and immature on and wrong on. And um, I, I, I discovered and uncovered and dealt with a lot of that through my four-step inventory where we talk about the sex inventory and this, that, and the other. But I really couldn't get down to brass tacks like I did with a therapist over several weeks. And that really helped save me and turn my life around. I'd like to take this time to make a few announcements. I want to remind everybody that SoberShares.com is ready for you to explore and enjoy. Here's a list of the things that you can do on our website. You can listen to all of our episodes, read our show reviews, email me directly with your comments and suggestions. My email address is Mike at SoberShares.com. That's M-I-K-E at SoberShares.com. You can record a message in your own voice by clicking the blue microphone icon that can be played back on the next episode. You can access our social media platforms on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can support us financially with a donation by clicking the PayPal donate button on our website, SoberShares.com. This donation process takes less than one minute, and your generosity will allow us to continue to create content for you at the highest level. Think of it like passing the basket at a meeting to help keep SoberShares open and operating smoothly. 
Your donation will be used to help us cover our monthly operating expenses. I want to mention a few of our listeners by name who have made a financial gift to move this project forward. Diana S. and Krishna A. Thank you very much. I want to assure you that I value your time and attention as a listener. Our sole focus at Sober Shares Podcast is to help people, and that guides everything that we do here. I'd like to get to a little listener feedback now and read one of the emails that we receive from our listeners. I'm going to turn over to Monica so she can read it for us. Diana S. She writes, Dear Mike, I discovered your podcast on Spotify. I had been listening to Alan on speakers when the last episode of that series ended. The next selection was your podcast. My 26-year-old son has 10 months of sobriety but does not attend any 12-step program. When I have asked him about giving AA a try, his response is, I don't have a problem with AA, but it just isn't for me. After listening to you and your guests share your stories, I have great hope that he will find the rooms one of these days. I know that he has to find his way, just as I am finding my way in Al-Anon. Thank you for providing these amazing stories of redemption and hope. They are truly a blessing. All right. Thank you for reading that. All right, let's get back to your story. I was mentioning a little bit before the break how I was talking about I'm a proponent and a supporter of medication if you need it and counseling and therapy if you need it, in addition to and going outside the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous to receive it. Do you have any thoughts on that? I do believe that it's, it's of great benefit. Personally and professionally, it's, it's been an intricate part of, of my journey. And What do you mean by professionally? So I, I actually work in the recovery realm. Um, I am a peer recovery support specialist. So I do recovery coaching, uh, working with uh, fellow alcoholics and addicts who are struggling with substance use. And so, you know, within my job, we're helping them embrace what recovery is and walking beside them and guiding them. How do they come to you? How do the clients come to you? By referral, word of mouth. Um, it's, it's been an awesome opportunity to be able to share my stories, you know, my story with others and to, you know, help them on this pathway to, to seek recovery. How much recovery. school and classrooms and education did you have to go to to get certifications to do all that? So I got my associate's degree in drug and alcohol abuse counseling. I had worked as a licensed chemical dependency counselor intern for some time, but did not end up finishing that piece. I still have a few more hours left that I will do at some point. Um, and then went and got my bachelor's degree in psychology, child development, and gender studies, and had a friend um, in the community who had done recovery coaching Well, we had actually gone through the training together. And what I loved about it was you're working with people on a very open, raw basis. You're beside them on just actions and suggestions and it's a really really neat way to work with people you know we're not their therapist we're not their sponsor we're that person who's getting them connected to those resources there's a few people up at our home group that we share in common the preston group in dallas texas or at least that's where i go i wanted to um let people know i mean i don't know i might edit this part out but there are a few people up there that work in the uh 
business of helping get people sober. I think some of them are interventionists. Sure. Some of them are, um, I don't even know what you would call them. They have relationships with treatment centers and stuff. And if they refer people to them, they help place people, I guess you would say, placement specialists for people that, that need that. Um, there was a term that I heard a long time ago. I don't hear that much chatter about it anymore. I don't even know how to say it. Is there something called an LCDC? Yeah, Licensed Chemical Dependency Counselor. So that's still a thing? Sure, Is yeah. Is that similar to what you do, or is that totally different? It's different that you're holding a license to be able to work through, um, you know, relapse prevention. You're strictly doing drug and alcohol counseling, whereas what I'm doing is we're looking at weekly goals related to sobriety, spirituality, health and fitness, relationships, and we're getting those people connected with the therapist, with the psychiatrist, with the sponsor, finding a home group. Um, So the neat thing about it is we're able to share some of our truths and our stories and give a little bit of insight and perspective um, in, in, a, in, in our journey on how we got to where we are today. Should we mention the name of the place you work? I have no problem with it. If you want to do it, let's go for it. Sure, yeah. I work for HEF Recovery. What does that stand for? Uh, it's Health Education and Fitness. Okay. Um, do you have the phone number memorized or do you want to look in your phone and get it? Do you, do you want, is there an email? Is there a way that they can reach out to you if they need to, to like use your services? Yeah. It's uh, coaches at hefrecovery.com. Okay, cool. I know that's not why you're here today, but that is what you do. And we're talking about you and your life. So let's mention the name of the place. I think that's a good idea. So it sounds to me, first of all, thank you for doing what you do. That's a good service to the community. I'm proud of you. And I'm proud of you on another level because from what you just said, the last several sentences, it sounds to me like you went back, got your stuff together, got sober, got in college, and were able to matriculate through the, the, the curriculum and get a degree. So tell me a little bit about how you did it, how it felt different, and how proud you are of yourself that you're able to do what you failed to do when you were a raging alcoholic, drug addict, cocaine addict. <laughs> How is it different? Yeah. um, I mean, for the first time, you know, making that decision to commit to recovery, to commit to going to meetings, to commit working with a sponsor, Mm -hmm. working with a therapist, as we talked about, you know, seeking outside help, um, but also having, you know, a deep connection with, you know, having a sponsor and, and reaching out to her when I was, you know, battling different decisions or struggling with certain issues and you know on the journey towards health and wellness as I like to say um, I was able to be just more present you know I ended up you know having my son and was working as a single mom going to AA meetings you know carrying him in his carrier you know sitting him right beside me and sitting in a meeting for an hour. I did the same thing. Isn't that so much fun? It is. I mean, he grew up in the rooms of AA. Okay. So guys and girls, if you're out there and you're thinking about getting sober and you're pregnant, about to be pregnant or just had a baby, that is not a barrier to sobriety. That is not a barrier to going to meetings because what I did is I, as soon as my son was born, I think I had like, I don't know, a few years sober, two, three, four years sober, still early sobriety. 
And I cannot believe how much fun it was to put my little baby in a little baby seat in the baby car and tell my wife, I'd be like, I got this kid for two hours. And she's like, where are you going? I'm like, we're going to an AA meeting. Roll into that AA meeting with this little baby I'm so proud of. And he's so cute. And I would just take him in there and all the girls would freak out. And all the guys would be like, oh, that's a cool baby. And I just did that. And my son has grown up in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he's seen me get chip after chip after chip. And he knows what it is. And he knows about this podcast. He's been on this podcast. He's proud of me. And he's never seen me drink or do drugs. But the thing is, I'm a full-blown alcoholic and drug addict. So he doesn't know that. I mean, he knows that, but he don't know it, dude. Like, he ain't never seen that daddy before. <laughs> He'd be He'd be like, what? He'd be like, who are you? What happened to your eyes? Why do your eyes look like that? And like, why, what are you doing? You know, and I would just, oh my God, it's a nightmare. I would never want to go there. But having a young child or being pregnant are not a barrier. Um, I will tell you a story, quick story. I was at a meeting called the Chicago Group on Wednesday night, which was, what's today? Is today's Friday? Yeah. yeah. So two nights ago, Wednesday night, I was at the Chicago Group. And there was a lady sitting in the back row, and she was a young mother, and she had a toddler with, you know, diapers on still. And this kid was probably two years old, could barely talk, but he could move around and yell and scream and make a lot of noise. And they asked at the beginning of me if there's any newcomers, and she raised her hand, and she had like just a couple weeks sober, but she was there with her two-year-old daughter who was making a lot of noise. I mean, a lot of noise during the meeting. There was a hundred people sitting in the meeting. No one turned around. Nobody glared. Nobody asked her to leave. A couple of the females did go get up and go there and asked if they could help. Like, let me let me take the baby back and try to like let let it you know get physical and run around a little bit. You know, ten to fifteen feet behind you, so the baby isn't locked in the row where you are. But it allowed the mother to focus and keep her attention forward while her baby was still behind her. But the baby baby was making a lot of racket, but nobody cared because she only had fourteen days sober and she was there by herself with her kid. So that's just some of the good times I've had in AA. And I've seen other people's children grow up in Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been in it for a while, and I've seen little babies grow up to be teenagers and then young adults. So it's super cool. Let's talk about sponsorship for a minute. How did you find your first sponsor, and what have they taught you? And then I'll ask you a couple more questions about sponsorship after that. Yeah, my therapist at the time introduced me to my sponsor, and... I had showed up to that meeting completely obliterated. and <laughs> The one that took you forever to read how it works. Yes, and, and I've been working with her ever since. And, you know, she has such a love and a patience and thorough understanding of just showing up in this program and helping other women along this path. Do I know her? You do. What's her first name? Allison. Okay. All right. All right. Um, so a couple more questions on sponsorship, just like I promised you. How has your sponsorship style changed over the years, if it has, as far as how you deal with your sponsees? Is it the same approach? Mine is very different. Well, this is probably a little bit of the difference within my story is I actually have not sponsored. Not yet? Not yet. Okay. What are we waiting for? You don't know? You know, that is something that it's taken some time to really kind of process and think about. Um, you know, I I was a single mom for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, just being 
engulfed in motherhood and as well working within this, you know, realm of recovery, mm-hmm. I just have not personally sponsored anybody. Well, I think that's kind of exciting for me knowing you and maybe becoming closer to you now and becoming more of your friend. I'm excited for when you get your first one and I want to see, (laughs) I want to see how you handle it and see how you roll because you no doubt have the experience. You've got all the engine parts. You've got all the gasoline. Everything's there. We just have to start the car and get it moving down the road. That's all you got to do. You've already got all the tools to do it. So I'm curious to see what that's going to look like for you when you start to uh, sponsor people. But there's so many other ways to be in service and to give it away and keep that third leg of the triangle um, rolling, you know. And it's uh, it's a very interesting thing. My, I'll talk about my experience real quick with that question. My experience at the beginning of my sobriety is I was a little bit more hardline in the beginning. I was a little bit like, like say if a family member or a friend would come to me and they'd be like, hey, Mike, my friend or my son or my daughter's drinking too much. Um, Will you will you call them? Will you call them and talk to them? <laughs> I always used to say in the beginning, no. I'd be like, no, I'm not going to call them. They got to, they want it. They got to call me. You know, they got to show desire. They got to call me. They got to want it. Um, I decided to uh, not be such a hardline guy on that anymore. And I will, I will reach out and I will call people because they're so lost in the sauce over there and they're just so confused and. A lot of them don't even know they're alcoholics, even though they are full-blown alcoholics and drug addicts. So, you know, I do reach out and I try to plant seeds of hope. You know, I don't actually say I'm going to come in and be the white knight on the on the horse and, and save them, but um, I can definitely maybe plant some seeds and be a good example and be a point of contact for them. So uh, if something ever does happen 5, 10, 15 years down the road, they can reach out. And then I used to tell people in the beginning, I'd be like, when I would get a new sponsor, I'd be like, I'm not, I'm not your taxi cab driver. I'm not your friend. I'm not your banker. I'm not your relationship therapist. I'm your AA sponsor. And my job is to lead you through the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and help you have a spiritual experience. But I'm not all those other things. I don't say that anymore. I don't make that announcement anymore. Because in my experience, what has happened is as I start to sponsor these guys, I fall in love with them. And then I want to be their friends. And then... I do drive them places sometimes. So I am kind of like their taxi cab driver. (laughs) So like all these things that I used to say that we're not doing and we're not this and I'm not going to do that. They all eventually become, you know, the deal. And sometimes I'm in their weddings, you know, I'm the best man in their weddings or, you know, the godfather to their children. And so it's just changed a lot how I, um, how I do it. And I used to be, one other thing I'll talk about real quick On, on the fourth and the fifth step early in sobriety and sponsorship, relationships between me and the guys I would sponsor early in sobriety on steps four and five, I'd be like, we'd get there and they'll be like, well, when, when, when should I have this done by? Like, how long do I have to do this? And I'd be like, just whenever dude, you know, I'd be like, you know, whenever the pain on your end is good, when you get enough pain, you'll do it. You know, you'll do it. I don't do that anymore because I mean, for several reasons, I don't do that anymore because the book talks about after we do our third step that we immediately launch out on a course of vigorous action, which is the fourth step. So I give them time frames now. I'm like, by next Friday, we're going to do your fifth step. So get it together, read it, let's go. Because it's a timeful time of um, a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain that comes up for a lot of people during the fourth step and the fifth step, a lot of emotional turmoil. And a lot of people will just sit on it and not do it and might relapse or might just get stuck in the ability to not get it going, you know, because it's 
scary to, to do the fourth and fifth step. So I give them time deadlines now and we go ahead and do it on a, on a regular um, schedule now. Has the desire to drink or to use drugs again returned since you've been sober? And if so, what have you done about it? No, the desire to use and drink has not returned. Um, and that's really due to just the trust in my higher power, the community that I've built up over these 11 years of recovery. You know, I can speak that my emotional sobriety has not always been the healthiest, (laughs) whether that, you know, be relationships that I've, you know, chosen in the past or, you know, struggles with kind of the ups and downs of anxiety or depression, but the desire never returned. That moment of clarity was so significant, finding out that I was pregnant and there was a connection there, being adopted was was really big within that process of knowing that I am about to have something that is of my own. And I full-heartedly made that commitment to do what I needed to do to remain clean and sober. And it's just been the most beautiful thing. My son has not had to be around a mom who has been under the influence of, of a drink or a drug. And I'm grateful for that. That's amazing and miraculous because if you think of the you before that, all the way up to that period, it's just like the chances of that happening where you're just clean and he never sees that girl is amazing. I mean, it's low percentage chance that that would happen. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I just really had to work through how selfish and (laughs) self-centered I was. Isn't that embarrassing to say that out loud? It is. It is. Me too. But for me personally, there was just something about looking at this little itty bitty and knowing that I am his caregiver. I am his resource to life. And that for me was just such an amazing moment. And it just propelled that commitment to, you know, do what it takes to do this deal and to reach out during the tough times. You know, life is not perfect, as we all know. And going through some ups and downs in recovery and having difficult, painful moments. Um, I was always, you know, able to lean into, you know, the, the women in the room, my sponsor, my family, my family that I gained back due to this program and due to the commitment and hard work. You know, there's something that I always think back about, which is just kind of maybe silly or important to me, but I always love looking at my keys because I didn't have keys to my parents' house, you know, 11, 12 years ago. And now, like, I have the trust of having their key, my own house key. And beyond that, it's a matter of, like, having their support and being able to turn to my mom or turn to my dad or my brother. And in times of struggle and in just times of life and joy, say, hey, I need you you know, and they're there. 
I'm not surprised that you didn't have keys because you took your dad's car and smelled it up like weed and gave it back to him. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> he's, like, he's like, you're not getting my keys no oh, more. Oh, man, I was angry. I was such an angry person. <laughs> what are some of the ways that you have uh, been able to reduce or get rid of or exercise some of your selfishness over the last 12 years? I mean, for me, it's it's just about really doing and treating people how I would like to be treated. The golden rule. I mean, it's it's not simple, but it is. <laughs> it's a simple concept, but it's hard as hell to do. Absolutely. And, and so for me, I try and think about, like, how can I just continue to be there for others? And if it was me on the other side, like how would I want to be spoken to or just treated? I'm going to give a quick shout out uh, to all the food servers and people that are working in the service industry and remind people, everyone that's listening to this podcast, please be extra kind and um, go ahead and tip them if you can. If you can't tip, just be as kind and as nice as you can because I worked in the service industry for a long time. And I would like to see more kindness um, bestowed upon those people and directed at those people because what they do is very hard. And, you know, you were talking about treat others like how you'd like to be treated. Just think of the ways that you speak to uh, waiters and people in service industries and hotels and rental car company um, counters and the people that work at Walmart and Target because um, they are just like you. They're humans. And just be as kind to them as you can. Smile. If, it's, if tipping's appropriate, please tip them. Because um, I've, just, I've been there. I've worked in the service industry a long time. And it makes a big difference when people are kind to you. Oh, absolutely. My first job in recovery, and really first job ever, was working at Starbucks. <laughs> and I was the window girl. I was handing out the coffees. I was taking the orders and the chitter chatter of, how's your day going? What are you up to? Oh, my God. And they make you say that, don't they? Yes, but it taught me, honestly, it taught me to step out of that self-centeredness. Wow. Yeah, because we go, to, I don't drink coffee, but I go to Starbucks with my wife all the time and they're like crazy nice on the speaker and then they're nice when you get there. I'm like, what the hell? You know what's crazy? This freaked me out. It's been years since this happened. I still think about it. I was driving through a Starbucks with my wife and she ordered some exotic thing, I don't know, like $10, $11 drink or something. And we pull up to the front to pay for it and the lady hands her the drink out the window and says, have a good day. And my wife's like, but I didn't pay for it yet. And she's like, it's okay. The car in front of you paid for it. And I go, she looked at me and she said, okay, thanks. And she drove off. And I was like, I was like, what just happened? I was like, what did she say? She, what are you doing? That lady said the car people in front of you paid for years. And she's like, yep, that's what she said. She's like, that's happened to me before here. I was like, what did that ever happen to you as a Starbucks employee? Did you ever see that? Oh yeah. We would try and keep it going. I mean, there was a time frame where it was like we got 15 cars worth of, of people paying for the next person beside them. But it was really funny because it would serious? always stop when people had ordered multiple breakfast sandwiches or protein boxes. Or and they're something. like, your grand total is, you know, 38, 49. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to like 
pause on that one, but y'all have a great day. <laughs> but no, it, it was really, I mean, I look back at my experience at Starbucks and it taught me a lot of responsibility and structure and I was new in recovery and it was a great support system for me. Like it really helped me really become the person I am today and move forward with this sense of motivation for life and a zest for life. And my goodness, we were up at four o'clock in the morning by 5 a.m., you know, serving coffee to people who were just, you know, getting going for the day. And we got to kind of be that shining light for them to say, hey, how are you? Yeah, and you also handed in the rocket fuel. Exactly. <laughs> Sometimes I would question the amount of rocket fuel that was in there, but hey, I've done worse things. Yeah. Um, another thing I want to turn our attention to real quick, and I've never talked about this on this podcast, is that when you are in early sobriety, I think that it's important that you have a job. Oh, I absolutely agree. No matter what that job is. And this, you know, I'm not saying it has to happen in the first 90 days, but, the, but you know, try, especially if you're in financial trouble and you probably are in financial trouble in the first year. Um, if you can try to get a job, it doesn't matter what job. There's really no job that should, that you should feel like is beneath you or I just want, I just want the people that I sponsor, I encourage them to find a job, any job, just to chew up hours in the day because we're so selfish and self-centered when we get here that we get paralysis via over-analysis. And we think about ourselves and we think about our problems and we just do, 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 do. we overthink it. We just overthink it. We just run it through our mind again and again and again. But if you've got a job, no matter what that job is and what it pays or where it is or what you're doing, it doesn't give you enough time to just think about yourself constantly. Maybe so. just volunteer work as well. well that's it's a good idea. So important. That's another good idea. No, I never thought about that. I just told them to go to work, but maybe I could tell them to do volunteer work. Have you done acupuncture again since that day that you got that, that spiritual experience? Have you done it again? Yeah, I've continued on with it. Um, I probably ended up, you know, having a few more, you know, sessions throughout the first two years of my recovery. It was actually a, a, an important part of my weekly routine early on in recovery, you know, hitting up, you know, three meetings a week, going to therapy once a week, doing acupuncture, making sure that, you know, is spending quality time with family, friends, volunteer work, of course, working. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I mean, that whole side of, you know, health and wellness was, was really important for me. Um, you know, I, I personally see, both sides of, you know, sitting your butt in a chair in a meeting and also too sitting your butt in the room of a therapist's office and working through some deep, deep, dark stuff. And it was important for me. Yeah. What about yoga? Have you been doing yoga too? I I've done a little, um, me too. I did my first class last week. Did you? Yeah, I talked about it on the last few podcasts. I was like, cause there's some yoga girls that are really into yoga on this podcast. And they all, and I told them, I was like, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to try to maybe do it. Well, I finally did it last week at the Addison Athletic Club. And uh, it was fantastic. It lasted an hour and 15 minutes. And the girl that was the teacher was very interesting. Um, maybe kind of an old hippie girl. She's kind of an old hippie with long hair, but really good shape. But And she was 
talking about told me like spread my eagle wings. She's like spread your eagle wings and fly. I'm just like what are we doing? And she's telling me all this stuff and you know showing me all these poses. And uh, I did not think that I could last for an hour and fifteen minutes, but I I did it. And but but I was like real stretched out and real. I was ready to go because I had gotten out of the spa and the hot tub and the sauna. So my my body was loose and my muscles were ready. I was flexible. And I was able to get through it, and I enjoyed it. And some of the ones I, like, some of the poses, I just was like, nope. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I was like, no. And she told me that. She was real kind. She's like, she's like, don't go too far. You know where you need to go. If you don't think you can do it, don't do it. And she would give me modifications on poses. She's like, if you can't do this, then do this. And it was real funny. Um, the funniest thing that happened in that class is for the whole hour and 15 minutes, she was like, move your eagle wings up and do this, that. And then at the end, she turned off all the last three minutes. I guess they call it the cool down. There's probably a term for it, but there's like a cool down period at the end where she turned the lights off and she was like slowing things down. I think she even started to play some hippy dippy music. And she's like, okay, everybody spread your evil wings. She said E-V-I-L. She goes, okay, everybody spread your evil wings. She's like, wait, oh, what? Oh my God, I can't believe I said that's not I mean, evil wings. I mean, eagle wings. The whole class just started laughing. And I was like, well, this is very uncomfortable now. So she kind of crashed the plane there the last two minutes of the class. But I was like, <laughs> it was a trip. So tell me about your experience with yoga. I want to know about yours. Yeah, I mean, it started off in in treatment, like we would have certain activities that we would do. But for me, it helped just so much mentally and emotionally. Um, I mean, I can't sit here and say that, you know, it's a major practice for me within my daily life, but it definitely helped put me on this pathway again into working out and taking time for myself to commit to working on that mental health piece. And I've just really found that, you know, whether it be a spin class, whether it be training for, you know, a, a run or, you know, lifting weights or whatever it is, just getting the body moving and active has been so key for me in my overall emotional well-being. Have you tried Orange Theory yet? I have not. I went to a couple free classes. They're incredible. I've heard that. I haven't gone back, but I was like, this is incredible. I got to go. I'm never coming back. <laughs> yeah. I love Soul Cycle. Ooh, you that's know. hard. That's spin, right? Oh, yeah. That's got to be hard. It's hard, but it's when you walk out of there, there's just this sense. Did of, you buy a Peloton bike? I do have a Peloton bike. Okay. Do you have the shoes and the I mat do. and the whole thing? I do. Yeah. I, you know, it's actually kind of become more of a, you know. Coat rack. Coat rack. That happens to everybody. <laughs> My wife's talking the other day. She's like, we need to get a treadmill. I was like, what? She goes, we got to get a treadmill for the house. I was like, yo, I know a lot of people that bought treadmills. You know what they do with those treadmills? So she's like, what? I was like, they hang their coats on it. That's exactly and what I was saying. they hang all their stuff on They don't use it. I was like, there's 100 treadmills right up there at the NS Athletic Club. Go there. Let's talk about diet a little bit. Has your diet changed since you've gotten sober and, like, your food intake? I mean, you're an athlete. You, I, you look, like, incredible. So I'm sure. Talk to me about your diet. Yeah. I mean, growing up, like, it was so strict in regards to what we ate. Um I mean, we would always have like three healthy meals a week and we would have leftovers on the other days. And by the time that I got a car, I went on this mission to eat all of the fast food humanly possible. Thank God. What was your favorite? Oh, I mean, I love McDonald's. What do you like? What do you get there? Oh, I'll eat a Big Mac any day, all day. 
Really? Love it. Absolutely love still? it. Oh, still. You're you know. Not, you don't like the McRib though, right? No. Thank no, you. Thank no, you. Thank you. My no. wife loves the McRib. I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, it's back. I'm like, you're gross. Don't do it. No, I can't do it. But no, I mean, diet, diet is important. You know, I definitely notice a difference if, you know, I'm eating nonstop fast food. But I don't know. Sometimes it's just about giving myself a little bit of grace. A little bit. Yeah. Have you ever messed around and had a uh, Mexican pizza at Taco Bell? No, I have not. Fully they, legit. They took away the quesaritos, and I, I, don't know I, what that I, is. I was very upset. What is a quesarito? Steak quesarito. It's a good old tortilla wrapped with rice, bean, and cheese, uh-huh. and some of their steak. Uh-huh. And uh, <laughs> you get 10 fire sauces going, and it's oh a meal made. Ten, 10 packets? Um, very specific. Like oh. five fire sauces per burrito. Oh, really? So you would get two? Oh, yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the Mexican pizza. It's so, so good. Okay, it might not be good for you, and I, I'll go ahead and give you that. But it is legit, and almost everybody that I know has never had one. And all you got to do is get $3.48 together and go to Taco Bell and order one. So please, I'm begging you to go try it. It is so, so good. The only complaint I have about the Mexican pizza from Taco Bell is that they're not consistent. Like if you go to different ones, they're made by different people. And I don't think that they ever sent out brochures to those people on how to make them. So they all make them how their mom would probably make them or how they feel like making them. So there's no consistency, but they're all good. So I have to try it. I hope you do. I hope you do try a Mexican pizza from Taco Bell. They're not paying me. This is not sponsored. I'm just trying to like get the good word out. Have you ever experienced depression or anxiety since you've been sober, and what have you done about it? Yeah, I struggled for years. I mean, I, I still struggle with generalized anxiety and, and depression. Now, you know, certainly it's, it's under control, Um you know, I, I, I believe, you know, that that concept of, you know, dual diagnosis is is real. You know, we, of course, struggle with, you know, the substance use side of things, the alcohol, the drugs. But, you know, there's stuff beneath that. And my experience was, you know, different situations, traumas that occurred in childhood, in teenage years, you know, catapulted me into really acting out by using drugs and alcohol, but also too brought me to this inward place of that struggle with depression and anxiety. And it definitely played a role in my struggle with, you know, addiction. Can you look at those 12 steps there in front of you? You've got a list of all the 12 steps. Do you have any one of those that you would like to highlight and maybe read out loud and talk a little bit about your experience with one of those and share it with the listeners? Yeah. I mean, for me, step one. Step Can you read one. it? You read yeah. It. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. That for me took such a long time to grasp. You know, I, I, I fought it for so many years. You know, I started drinking and using, you know, at 13. From there, it just propelled onward into just out of control. And I didn't want to admit that I was powerless. You know, I was 19. Yeah, me too. No 19-year-old wants <laughs> to admit that they're powerless. You know, they're on that journey of, like, 
finding themselves and who they are. And I was in this continuous state of just numbing out. And when I first walked into, I would say my second AA meeting, um, it was a hard concept to grasp. You know, I didn't want to admit that my life had become unmanageable. I didn't want to admit that I didn't have control over this deal. And if you read the second step, they say that you're crazy. Yeah. It says, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, the opposite of sanity is insanity. So they're basically calling you crazy. And I was 19 and I was up in there. And I read that. I was like, how dare you? And then I looked at the third step and talking about God. I was like, and it's a cult too. I was like, you got to be kidding me, dude. You talking about God. You tell me I'm crazy. And I'm powerless. I was like, I'm 19 dog. And, uh, I slowly by little just kind of gave in and gave up and realized that I was waking up a lot at the end of my drinking at 19 years old saying I wasn't going to drink today. And every day by 11 a.m. I changed my mind. Right. And I would say I'm not drinking today in the morning and mean it. Like you could hook me up to a lie detector and say, Mike, are you going to drink today? I'd be like, nope. And it'd be like, he's telling the truth. The machine would say he's telling the truth. And uh, I would, every day I would drink and I was shocked and horrified. I can't think of two better words to describe how I felt about every day waking up saying I'm not going to drink. And then I would drink and I'd be shocked and horrified that I couldn't pull that off. And then it happened again the next day. And I'd be like, oh my God. I was like, that's step one. Like it got me there quick. And I ended up getting sober, you know, at 19, like I told you earlier, and stayed sober two and a half years and then relapsed for eight years. And I want to tell you real quick what I learned during that eight year relapse. I learned what it feels like, smells like, tastes like, and looks like to be dying of active alcoholism and drug addiction. And that was not a fun eight years. That was a, a period of me spiraling downward and my world getting smaller and darker. And I noticed that the, my companions and my friends and the people that I hung out with started to get like scuzzier and scuzzier and scuzzier and uh, more and more questionable. And I just was kind of like almost like looking down on them and judging them. But then I was have to admit honestly that I was there with them and that I was like them and doing the same things that they were doing. So eventually just got to that jumping off point where I could no longer imagine life sober. I couldn't figure it. I couldn't picture myself sober and I also couldn't picture myself continuing to drink and drug. So I was at that jumping off place. Can we talk about the 11th step real quick? I'm going to read. Let's talk about the 11th step sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God. As we understood him praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Can you tell us what styles and forms of meditation and prayer you're using currently? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's just about taking some time to myself. You know, early on, it was really hard to grasp what meditation and prayer looked like. Like, I didn't know how to pray. I didn't know how to sit still for like a minute. And and what I was told was just to take it literally one minute at a time. And I started off, whether it be, you know, meditation apps. Um, mm. I love the Brene Brown, you know, guided meditations. You're the and second person to talk about that person on this show. Who is, I don't know who that is. Who is that? Um, she's, she's in recovery herself. Um, but she, she, you know, speaks a lot about like codependency and, and recovery related topics, you know, everything from you know, self-esteem, confidence to codependency. Um, she's, she's inspirational. Do you still use any apps for that? Do you have any apps on your phone? You want to give a shout out to any of those apps that you use? 
Yeah, I love the um, letting go app. So, in fact, today's reading let's go get it is meditation and prayer. Well, that's what we're talking about right now. The eleven is the eleven step asks yeah. us to meditate as a route to improving our conscious contact with God. That was not planned. Not planned. That just happened. That, that just some, happened. That was some sober shares magic. <laughs> but I mean, for me, it's it's not about like I used to think like prayer was about like having this aha moment and. For me, it's just about a simple connection and being able to, you know, get centered and, and, and make sure that, you know, it's, it's his will, not mine. Cause my, my ways don't work. Yeah. My, my ways end me up in trouble and my ways, you know, put me in tricky situations. <laughs> tricky situations. I like the way you describe that. I think the biggest and gnarliest and most effective prayer I've ever said is God help me. Yeah. And I remember it was at 9.30 p.m. on October the 9th of the year 2000. And that's the, the, the minute I got sober, I said, God help me. And it worked in, in a real, real miraculous way. I want to go back to your family of origin and talk to you about Jewish food and Jewish cuisine. So you were adopted into that family. Do you have a taste for it? Did you like it? Did you love it? Did you hate it? Can you mention some of the foods that a little Romanian girl that was adopted into a Jewish family got exposed to? Um, well, as you know, it's raining right now. Yes. And uh, all I would love right now is a matzo ball soup. Really? Oh, it's delicious. Okay, I've never had it. What is a matzo ball? Well, matzo ball, so it's unleavened. But the way that it's cooked is where it's literally shaped like a ball. Okay. And you've got the broth, and there's different types. You know, some people have it a little differently. But um, growing up, um, I mean, it just was just filled with veggies, and it was just, uh, it's so good. Okay. Do you are you do you cook Jewish foods? No, I don't cook. Okay. If I cooked, I'd burn you don't cook at all. Down. You don't cook Jewish foods. Oh, I I just don't cook. Then how you've got to have a Mexican pizza at Taco Bell. I then. do. Let's go. I do have if to you, have the Mexican. Pizza if you're not Taco cooking, Bell. you got to go get three dollars. I'll give you three dollars and forty eight cents. I will sponsor this trip. You've got to do it, especially if you don't cook. Um, do your kids like Taco Bell? Uh, the oldest does. Maybe he'll go. He'll hit. Yeah. Bell. What does he get? Oh, he just loves a, a cheese quesadilla. Okay. What is gefilte fish? You know what? I loved that growing up, and I what is still it? Is it am fish? not quite sure you what it is. Oh, <laughs> you don't even know what it is. is but it I would love that dish. I mean, it comes in like a jar, though. Is it stinky? No, it's not. It's really honestly not. You know, uh -huh. my mom always tried to introduce us to different you know, Jewish foods and, I mean, of course, the culture. I mean, growing up and, you know, having a bat mitzvah and learning Hebrew and learning how to read the Torah and, you know, working alongside, you know, the rabbis. I mean, I've been to Israel twice. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, that connection, you know, to that religion is there and there's a beauty to it. Um, you know, I, I still occasionally will, you know, try and sing you know, or, or recite some of the prayers. Um, Go ahead. I have to do it when other people are <laughs> reciting them along with me. I mean, you might have busted into it. You know, I got to ask. I might have. You might have been like. <laughs> I might have. You might have just hit it. But. If I don't ask, you might. 
Um, so what else did I want to ask you? I want to know one more thing. Give me a second. I remember what I wanted to ask you. Oh, yeah. Ready? So what's the main thing or the coolest thing or your favorite thing that you learned from the Jewish faith? Like, what do you hold on to? What's the most interesting thing that you've pulled from that? There's a lot about service work. Really? Okay. I don't the, know. the Jewish faith, and as I'm sure with other faiths, um, we were always taught to give back. And from a very young age, um, we were volunteering. You know, we were working beside other families, you know, whether it was teaching English or up at the food pantry, putting together, um, you know, meals for, for families, um, raising, you know, just awareness. There's something in the Jewish faith, it's, it's called Sadaka. And every Sunday at Sunday school, my parents would send me, maybe sounds a little minute of a number, but 50 cents every Sunday to give back. And I always remember being like, mom, I need my sadaka. I have to give back. I have to give back. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that, that carried on for me is just wanting to be there for others. And it's something that, you know, today uh, I love to practice. Um, I'm excited to, you know, get my kids involved in, in service work. Um, you know, we, we will go up to uh, Dallas Life here in Dallas. And uh, my son, he's so adamant about wanting to come, but he has to be 12 to be able to, you know, help with serving the food. Mm -hmm. um, I told him, one more year. He's we'll, almost there, 11 we'll, years old. We'll get old. there, but it's, it's just giving back to people is just so important. Do they, at the synagogue and the Jewish faith and all that, do they pass the basket during the service and take up money and collections and stuff? No. Okay, no. well, how do they get, I guess, you know. Just through donations. At and some funds. point, people write checks and stuff. Yeah. Okay. The Christian faith, they hand the basket around. They take up collections and stuff. There is a church I go to in Dallas. It's called IBOC. It's not my home church, but it's one that I go to. It's called IBOC, Inspiring Body of Christ, with uh, the pastor, lead pastor's name's Ricky Rush. And it's a predominantly African-American church. And when I say predominantly, I say about 98%, maybe 99%. So when I go there, I, I'm a white guy. So I stand out, you know, dramatically. And there's a lot of things I like about IBOC. And I mean a lot, a lot of things I like about IBOC. But one thing that's a trip about that church that I've never seen before is they pass the basket no less than five times. Wow. They passed the basket. We got the church building fund. We got the outreach fund. We got the parking lot fund. I just, the first time I went, I was like, the basket's coming again, dog. I was like, I am tapped out. What are we doing for this time? Okay, building a new parking lot. Um, one, probably the coolest thing about IBOC is the choir. Okay, the choir. Pre-pandemic, it was 300 people. And most of these cats just got out of jail. Or they just got out of prison or they just got off the streets. They were just homeless or they were just in prison. Not all of them, but out of 300, a big portion of them were, were, was that, that demographic. And uh, there's a lot of longtime members that are there in the choir too, so I'm not trying to say it's all like that. But what I want to say is I have never been to a church where I can feel the music in the center of my soul more than I do when I'm at IBOC. I love that church. I love the people there. I love the choir. Post-pandemic, it's shrunk. It's shrunk down a lot, you know, because you got to do the six feet apart thing. Not as much anymore, but it's a really, really fun church. So if anybody's looking for a crazy church, you know what it reminds me of? Did you ever, have you ever seen the movies Blues Brothers? 
There's a with John Belushi yes. and Dan Aykroyd. Yes. Okay, it's it's a much older movie than you are, but it's a, a movie called Blues Brothers with uh, John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. They go to an African American style church, and um, James Brown is there, and he's the the preacher, and people are doing backflips down the aisle, and it's gnarly. And that's the kind of church is high energy. We got praise dancers. I didn't tell you about the praise dancers. We got a whole bunch of praise dancers that are going up and down the uh, aisles, and they've got big gowns on, and it is. I mean, they're feeling the spirit, and uh, they're emoting, and it is fun. It's almost like Potter's House in Dallas. There's another big church here in, in town, uh, predominantly African American membership. It's called Potter's House, and I go there too, and that that is uh, that is a lot of fun. And then I also go to um, Fellowship Grapevine, um, so it is fun. But the old me would only go to like churches like that, like in emergency situations or when I was desperate or you know kind of at my wits' end. So I'm not pushing church. I'm not pushing the Bible. I'm not pushing the Jewish faith. But I'm, I like to talk to different people. I haven't had a Muslim on here yet. I'd like to talk to a Muslim. You know who else I want to talk to? An atheist. You know who else I want to talk to? An agnostic. I also want to talk to transgender people, gay people, lesbian people. I want to talk to all faiths, all denominations, all religions, all um, gender identities. I want to talk to old people, young people, poor people, rich people, professional people, housewives. Like I'm trying to build a menagerie or a collection of uh, audio documents that we can share with the world that will show people that alcoholism and drug addiction is something that can be overcome and you can have a heavy and full and beautiful life on the backside of that addiction. And that's why you're here today. And that's why I'm here today. It's amazing. What's been your toughest challenge in sobriety so far and how have the 12 steps helped you to deal with that? I would say the toughest challenge has probably just been parenthood. <laughs> you said you were a single mom for a while. Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it was, you know, I was young. I was 19, well, 20 when I had my, my oldest. Mm-hmm. And I felt alone. I, I didn't feel, you know, again, a, a piece of my life where I didn't feel a part of. I just felt distant and for me, what the program did and what the 12 steps did was bring me a deeper understanding of who I was and as well bring me to a community of strong, sober women. They embraced me. And from there, I knew that you know a life sober was possible. I knew that I could be a healthy mom. And then I could do this. Parenthood, it's got its ups and downs. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be calling the sponsor and saying, man, I'm having a really hard time today. You know, I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling exhausted. And there's just that reminder to, you know, get with God and, you know, get yourself centered. And, and also, too, like implementing, you know, self-care. That's just been something that I've had to learn over time. I'm a very go, go, go person. Like I like to stay busy. I like to stay active. And for me to take time to pause has been something over these past 11 years that has been difficult for me because I've always had this fear that if I pause, then that stuff's going to start spinning again. Like what do you mean in your mind? Yeah, just, you know, the struggles with, anxiety, the struggles with depression, um, you know, just the negativity. 
It'll be cool when you do allow yourself to slow down and it doesn't spin up. Right, right. Well, and I've gotten there. I've gotten there. Take some deep breaths. And yeah, it's taken time. Like early on in recovery, I just thought I had to just be go, go, go (laughs) all the time. Like I couldn't take a moment to pause. Like even just like my meditation, my prayers was like, thank you, God, for keeping me sober. Like your will, not mine. Boom, done. And now it's about just embracing the quietness, you know, that serenity. Like, I love awkward pauses. I used to be so uncomfortable with awkward pauses in conversations. Like, I was like, okay, like, when are they going to talk? Like, what are we thinking? What are we doing here? And it's, it's just been awesome. I just wanted to see how you'd handle an awkward pause. I'm fine. We can sit here all day. <laughs> just to let the listeners know. <laughs> just to let the listeners know, it is raining so hard outside the studio right now. And this is the first podcast I've recorded uh, in the uh, in the elements like this. And we've got a full glass window beside us and behind us. And there's a beautiful park behind us. And now it looks almost like a creek back there with all the water running. Are you enjoying watching? Oh, the, I love it. Is it freaky? Has, but has anybody been walking by with raincoats and dogs or not even? No, I don't think anybody's getting out today. Really not one person has rolled past? No. Usually there, usually there's just dogs and people and golf carts and all kinds of crazy stuff going on back there. Why is going to meetings important? Meetings are so important. Um, it's, it's, it brings you to that place of just not forgetting where you came from. That's what it does for me. You know, I, I sometimes quickly can forget what my life looked like beforehand and how chaotic and out of control it was. And what the meetings do for me is put me right back into the present moment and they keep me aligned with who I want to be and what I want to become. And from a spiritual sense, it, it's sitting in that room brings me closer to God. And, and, and I enjoy hearing you know the newcomers come in who are who are struggling and and uncertain about what this next step is going to look like for them and and just being able to be a person of reassurance and and hope and and also you know them coming in and being a reminder for me that like within the snap of a finger like this this could go away yeah. And and so meetings for me have just continued to be a reminder of what recovery has done for my life and what it does for those around me. And then I never want to go back to the person that I was. Do you have a certain number of meetings you try to attend each week? Do you have a number you try to hit? Yeah, I mean for me it's it's roughly two or three. Um, a lot of people say that. Yeah, I mean I'll I'll admit I mean, the, the busyness of life, which it's not an excuse, but it it comes into play, whether it be, you know, carpool or (laughs) after school activities, you know, I coach our oldest soccer team, you know, all the kiddos are involved in, you know, different sports. And, and so for me, what, what I've done is very early on in my recovery, 
um, I set boundaries for myself and, and what it looked like, um, for me again, like not trying to take control of my program, but I know that without AA, like none of what I have today exists, like without recovery, it just does not exist. What about your uh, fiance? Is he in total support and understanding of your recovery and needing to go to meetings? What's his deal? Yeah, um, he's one of us. Okay. Where did so, you meet him? In the meetings? We did. We met in the meetings. Okay. And um, yeah, that relationship <laughs> began. Okay. Can you give me an example of one of the promises coming true in your life? And would you read it to us so we can hear which one you're talking about? Yeah. So where it says our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. I mean, I used to just be such a hopeless person. I, I, I didn't really see a life for me when I was in my active addiction. I was one of those individuals who quite frankly thought that I would die young, um, that my addiction would take me from this world. And today there's such a hope and positive outlook um, and attitude for, for life in general. And just another day here in this present moment, I continuously just have so much gratitude for. You know, being able to show up for the people around me and... Like, like you did today. You showed up for me today. You and I'm loving you, it. You said you were going to be here and then you came. And I'm here. Yay. Um, I remember at some point in sobriety, um, I was like, I need to start being on time to stuff i would be like always late to stuff like i would tell people i'm gonna do this i'm gonna do this and then i would just get there and i'd be like what happened i don't know what time it is i don't know and i'd be like an hour later two hours late or or I, a lot of times in early i wouldn't commit to stuff i would wait a long time and i was like people be like you want to go out friday night and go see this movie and go do this deal and i'd be like well, I don't really know. In my mind, I was a commitment phobe. Like, I wasn't really sure I was going to be able to get myself emotionally enough together to go be around a group of people and go to a movie. But as I matriculated through sobriety and uh, kind of removed all the things that are blocking me off from the sunlight of the spirit, I'm able to make plans, make commitments with people, and then follow through with them. My sponsor always talks about that in reference to work, and he says, now that I've been sober for a while, I go to work, I work while I'm at work, I stay at work, and then I go do other stuff. He goes, he goes, it's really sobriety. It was difficult for me to get to work. And then I was at, when I was at work, I wouldn't really work. And then I wouldn't stay there, I would leave. And then I was wondering why I was broke all the time. He's like, and he's like, and then I figured out, he started about me, he talks about money sometimes. He's like, uh, yeah, it's not my money, it's God's money. He tells me all that. He's like, it's not my money, it's God's money. He talks about I don't know, you know, I'm trying to get there. He talks to me all the time. He's trying to like, I know he's trying to plant seeds and I know he's trying to program me, but sometimes you're just not where your sponsor is yet. You know, they're like further down the path. And so I'm still working on that. All right, let's turn our attention to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was going to ask you if you have a favorite passage or part of the big book that you'd like to share with us. We are now at step three. Many of us said to our maker as we understood him, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou will. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. 
take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those. I would help of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. This, for me, was a very poignant moment um, for me in my recovery, you know, third step prayer. Um, did you do it on your knees holding another female's hand and do that? I did. I did. I, I did this with my sponsor um, on my knees holding each other's hands. And it was a very powerful moment. Um, it, it, was, it was that surrendering, that surrendering to my higher power being God that from here on out, his will, not mine. And trusting in God that everything will be okay. You know, there's a certain responsibility on my part to take action on a daily basis. There's also that piece of understanding that I'm not in the position to control the outcome. This for me was so important because I was taking away my ideas of how my future was supposed to go, how even just the present moment was supposed to go, how life in general was supposed to work. It was me fully saying your will from here on out. And don't get me wrong at times, like it's hard. You know, there's certain things that it would just be easier if it was this, this, or that, or if I had X, Y, and Z, or, you know, give me this, I want that. And now what I constantly remind myself of is like, God's got this, like God has got this. Whatever difficulty or situation is presently happening or going to happen, like it's going to be okay. And, and for me, that's just been so important is to have that, that firm relationship with God. And, and I don't really put forth like this outward explanation to like those around me. In fact, my fiance like rarely even sees my time with God. It's, it's very much so in my own moments. Like I'm not the type of person that wakes up and, you know, kneels at the side of my bed. If you are, I think that's great. Um, I'm just not that person. Like for me, it's after the hustle bustle of the morning of getting the kids dropped off, like, you know, having the coffee spill over my lap and making a turn on the highway. Um, it's, it's once that quietness within my car is there, that's my go time with God. And, and for me, it's just about like the visual, the visualization of, you know, what's taking on, what's taking place around me and, and just saying, Hey, okay, like my day has already started and thank you for everything that you've done thus far and be with me throughout this day. And I'm going to trust in you're doing and it's amazing i think it's really cool that a lot of your spirituality takes place in your car by yourself because earlier about an hour ago you were talking about your moment of clarity your third step experience happened in your car by yourself and you're continuing that pattern and that's still happening to you so i think that is really cool 
so we're coming down to the end of the show. I want to tell you that I appreciate you joining us here today on Sober Shares. It's been a moving experience, and I appreciate you sharing your story with us. And I want to ask you if you have any final thoughts. I mean, I'd like to really just say to anybody who's out there struggling, the newcomer, to just listen. Listen. There is hope. I, I didn't think there was hope when I came into these rooms. And I didn't think there was going to be any significant change to my life by working 12 steps that were hanging on a wall. But what recovery has done for me is something that I never imagined possible. And it's been truly the greatest blessing and greatest gift. Because today I get to show up. And I get to have this connection with a higher power that I didn't think was ever possible. I've discovered who I am and I've gained back just such a deeper understanding of myself. I just am comfortable with who Monica is. And that's taken a lot of time to get there, but it's worth getting there. Who is Monica? You say you say you figured out who it is, and it took a long time to get there. So who is Monica? Who are you? What, what would you say that you've discovered about yourself? Oh, man, I've discovered a goofy sense of humor. I mean, I, I'm an oddball. I'm a weirdo. I come off at times, you know, put together and organized. And I am those things as well. But yeah, you I, look put together and organized to me. But I just, I'm silly. I love to be silly. Like, you know, I've, I'm a fun-loving mother, and... I love to learn, and, and I don't know. I'm just me. I don't know how long I had sober. Maybe it's not important the amount of time I had sober, but I eventually learned how to wear life like a loose garment, and I was never able to do that. And I started hearing people in the meetings talk to me about, oh, I'm comfortable in my own skin now. And I was like, well, I don't even know what that means, but okay, whatever, dude. I hear you saying that. And then so now I'm that dude that always talks about that, and I've learned to wear life like a loose garment. And the way that I can do that is I have a deep and uh, abiding faith that I'm going to be okay no matter what. God loves me, and no matter where I am and what's happening to me at that exact moment, it's all part of the big plan, and I'm going to be okay, and he's going to take care of me which allows me to not stress. I mean, I can stress some if I choose to, and sometimes there are, I'm not going to lie, sometimes there are stressful situations or stressful events <clears throat> or things that are coming up in, in the front windshield of my life that I see things coming down the pike at me, and I'm like, that's going to be tough. That's going to be harder. This is hard. But I'm able to let it um, just kind of bounce off of me because I know from the center of my soul outward that I'm going to be okay and that God has the power to keep me sober this long. He's going to be able to continue to do that. And if I stay sober and I stay strong in the center of the program of recovery that both of you and I are a member of, that I'm going to be okay no matter what. And that's a, that's a beautiful feeling. Yeah. I mean, I, I so align with what you just said. And it takes time to get there. But it, it's, it's a practice of, of, for me at least, my experience is just daily trust daily trust that no matter what it will be okay and as you spoke upon i mean there's there's certainly hardships i mean i've i've faced some of my hardest moments in recovery and being able to walk through those um sometimes slowly 
you know, there's learning curves that, that had to be understood. But I was able to, to walk through it, and, and I'm okay, and I'm sitting here today. I um, hear all the time about, uh, there's certain, you know, like, you like when you go to these meetings and you go to a lot of these meetings, you, you have all these characters, right? Like, you know, that dude or that chick. And a lot of times they'll repeat themselves. They'll say the same thing at every gratitude meeting, or they'll say the same thing at every step four meeting. And one guy that I know from the Aquarius group, I'm not going to say his name, but he always talks about giving yourself the gift of time. And he's talking to the newcomer. He's like, please give yourself the gift of time. You didn't get, and he says it just like this. He goes, you don't, you didn't get farkled up. He uses this word farkled. I don't even think that's a word. He's like, you didn't get farkled up overnight and you're not going to get, you know, unfarkled if that's a word. I like it. Or straightened out um, overnight. It took you years to get where you are and it's going to take years to un, un, uncover and discover and discard some of the pieces and parts that you're going to discover about yourself that are no longer usable to you. And they, then you hear the analogies talking about, oh, long-term sobriety is like, you know, having an onion and you, 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 un, you unpeel the onion layer by layer and you discover more about yourself and you discard the old pieces. And it's just something that I really, really um, lean into and believe in and give yourself the gift of time because it's going to take... I don't know that the listeners might not be excited to hear this, but years. It can. Years. It to- can take years. And I mean, one thing. One thing that helped me was I had a I had a therapist um, at one point, and she had shared something along the lines of, you know, giving as much effort to my recovery as I did my addiction. Mm. Like I would do anything to get a drink or a drug, yeah. anything, things that, I mean, there's shame that was attached to so many, you know, ways that I went about, you know, obtaining the drink or the drug. And when I heard that, it really resonated that like, okay, if I'm going to put myself in these really dark, dangerous, unhealthy situations, like, why the heck won't I put myself into the healthy ones and give that full effort and apply that same grit and motivation that I put into getting drunk and high? Yeah, for you sure. Know? Like, I hear people say that when talking about meeting attendance. A lot of times true. they're like, well, it was raining today and I was really raining and I was thinking about not coming to a meeting today. And then there's the guy or the girl be like, but I used to go to any links to get drug or alcohol. I would drive, you know, from a dry County to a wet County for three to four hours to get a 12 pack. And so I figured I'd just put on my galoshes and come up here and, and hang out. Um, another thing I want to talk about as far as we were talking about giving yourself the gift of time to, to get deep into recovery is what I realized for myself is that there's several areas of my life. You know, it's not just, I mean, yes, there's the whole person, but if you break down that whole person, there's all these different areas within my personality and my soul, which are, which make me up. For example, my spiritual side, my emotional side, my physical side, my monetary side. Um, there's just all these different areas within my heart, mind, and soul that make me up. So when I got into sobriety, the first thing I had to address was, was my physical allergy to alcohol and drugs. And I needed to stop ingesting that and which was going to trigger the craving. So I worked on that real hard 
And then uh, I started to work on the emotional stuff. Then I started to work on the spiritual stuff. And then I started to work on the sexual stuff. But it took me years to unpack and discover and discard a lot of old ideas and thoughts that were no longer uh, serving me. And they were also a lot of ideas about who I was, who you were, and who God was that I came up with when I was like 10 years old or 14 years old or 17 years old. And uh, as walking around as a 30-year-old man, 40-year-old man, 50-year-old man, those, those thoughts and ideas no longer served me. And I had to discard old ideas to replace them and make room, you know, within my spirit to add new things in. And so that's what I mean about giving yourself the gift of time. And I'm continuing to give myself the gift of time because I'm planning on staying sober for the rest of my life. So I got maybe another 30, 40 years to go. and That'll be a lot of fun. It will be. I'm super excited about it. Anything else you want to say? We're getting towards the end. You good? You want to read something for me? Have you ever heard of the rewards? Have you ever seen this before? Let me come down there and hand this to you. Check that out. Have you ever have you ever seen that or, or heard of that? Mm-mm. Look down at the small print in the very bottom and read that if you can. Uh, presented at 1985 International AA Convention by Ann C. Yeah, Ann C. was a longtime member of Alcoholics Anonymous on the panel and the board of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she came up with the 12 rewards. And they're similar to the promises, but different. I like to talk about them. Most people have never heard of them or seen them. So if you could take a minute and maybe read those 12 rewards, that would be really good. Yeah, so the rewards. One, hope instead of desperation. Two, faith instead of despair. Three, courage instead of fear. Four, peace of mind instead of confusion. Five, self-respect instead of self-contempt. Six, self-confidence instead of helplessness. Seven, the respect of others instead of their pity and contempt. Eight, a clean conscience instead of a sense of guilt. Nine, real friendships instead of loneliness. Ten, a clean pattern of living instead of a hopeless existence. Eleven, the love and understanding of our families instead of their doubts and fears. Twelve, the freedom of a happy life instead of the bondage of an alcoholic obsession. Oh, that's powerful. It's beautiful. Yeah, when I when I first time I saw that, I was like, what? I actually printed 200 of those out and handed them out at the Preston Group. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I left a big stack of them up there. I laminated the ones I, you know, the ones I was going to keep. I even laminated some and put them in the basket. But anyways, I just thought we would read that for the listeners. I want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, you and I talked before we started recording, and you were thinking about possibly giving your email out. Do you want to give your email out in case people want to get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to you know, talk to anybody who's out there struggling or just be there. My email is Monica, it's M-O-N-I-C-A, at H-E-F recovery.com. I appreciate you joining us. I want to read something called A Vision for You. This is from page 164 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'll read this, and we will see you all on the next episode of Sober Shares. Here we go. A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day to reach the man who is still sick. 
the answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. See you all in the next episode. Thanks, Monica.